6, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, with an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise that immutably of his counsel confirmed, by, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which, is, which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Where the forerunner has entered it for us, even Jesus, having, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We have strong consolation, and he showed it in times past to prove it. And this is going to be one of those times that we're going to learn about today. You know, God's presence is exciting, whether you're reading about it in Scripture or you have seen him work in your life and know that he is um, working for you and doing things for you, even touching your heart, maybe converting your heart. Um, but... What's more intriguing that sometimes is, is God's absence. When you really, really want a word from Him, you really want direction from Him, you really want to know, is He there, is He close, and He doesn't speak or He doesn't show Himself or you don't have any signs of Him answering a prayer or whatever, and you just want to know, that's, that's as intriguing as anything. And um, uh, what we're going to find today is... Uh, a lesson that says that God is there. He's, he's there all along. And sometimes one of the advantages of getting older is you have more of a record of God's work in your life. You can look back and have a, a longer period of hindsight and see that He's been there working all along. And uh, we're going to see something like that today. So it's been nearly 38 years since the time that Zerubbabel and the returning captives, the Jewish captives of Babylon... Uh, come back and build the temple in Jerusalem. It's been about 38 years. That is, if Esther's time took place um, uh, around 478 B.C., and if she reigned about 14 years, uh, up to 464 B.C. So it's been about 38 years. There's not a lot going on in Jerusalem, and the story uh, takes a turn and goes north. And we pick up with some things that are happening in the northern hemisphere. Up in uh, what was the Babylonian Empire, but is now the Persian Empire. They are now the new world power. And the capital uh, is not Babylon, it's Shushan. Um, historically, you might read it as Susa. You've heard of that city, and that's where these things are taking place. I'll use the word that's in the Bible, Shushan. So in the book of Esther, you see that God worked a great work for the Jews, 
as well as, as well as for you and me. Once again, I've, I've got to call your attention to something. We are following a promise God made to save the world from their sins. That every family on the world would be blessed because He would send His Son to die for them. Now, whether or not we take that up, whether or not we employ that blessing in our lives, God has left that to us. It is the purpose of preaching. It is partly the purpose of our gathering to spur on one another by faith to accept the will of God in our lives and to believe that He will come through on His promise. It is also part of our gathering to prick hearts through these words and to move people, to stir people's hearts into action, to, to come under obedience to God through Jesus Christ in order to be saved. He did all of this work in the book of Esther so that today someone might be saved. So we have, to, we have to capture that, otherwise we're getting a nice history lesson. And if you're like me, you like to sleep during nice history lessons. And that is uh, certainly uh, not a good time to sleep today because God's going to do something great here in this city. He is not even mentioned by name in this book. Not God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord. He's not mentioned by name. Although his fingerprints are from beginning to end. And uh, I'd say he's behind the scenes. We use that term. But he's really not behind anything. He's right out in the forefront. He just can't be seen because he's the invisible God. And we don't always understand everything he's doing until he reveals it to us. And so we, we get that in this book, how God is working. And this, these also are some great lessons for us personally to take home. Uh, just how God does things and how He uh, uses people, circumstances to bring about good, especially for those who love the Lord. He brings it to a marvelous conclusion for His people then and now. So the story of Esther demonstrates how God is able to keep His promise to bring about our salvation by turning what was about to become an ancient day holocaust into a day of national annual celebration. He turned a day of great mourning into a memorial by promoting two obscure Jewish captives in the Persian capital of Shushan. Through His providential work, the Lord, the Lord foils a plot by a high-ranking Persian prince named Haman to kill the Jews in every one of the 127 provinces in the Persian Empire. He foils that plan. And he exalts the beautiful Jewess Hadassah, who becomes known as Hester, Esther, um, whose name probably means star. Uh, he, he exalts her to become the queen of Persia. And along the vein of Joseph, who became second in command to Pharaoh, and Daniel, who became second in command to the king of Babylon. Mordecai, her cousin, is exalted to become second in command in Persia. The story picks up in chapter 1. Won't you turn there with me to the book of Esther? It's right before the book of Job and, and Psalms. The story picks up in chapter 1 in the third year of the reign of the Persian king 
Ahasuerus, where he invited all his nobles and princes for a six-month festival to show off his glory and power. Now, historians believe that they may not all have left their provinces for six months to come to the, to the capital, capital for a big, long party, but, but rather successively uh, they came to the capital from these provinces. And they believe it is because uh, during this time, they are going to take their first stab at the Grecian Empire that was rising in power and to go and invade Greece. And the king, perhaps, was wanting to show his glory and majesty and power to invoke loyalty, to invoke confidence within those nobles and military leaders of those provinces. So he throws this six-month-long, basically a big show-off party, bringing them all through, and follows it by a seven-day feast in the capital for the people in the capital to... to um, uh, to, to exalt him and, and their glory and to make ready for this great event. He saves the best event for last. He gets half drunk first, and then he calls for the queen. Now, it's not Hadassah yet. It's not Esther. It's Vashti. And he calls for her to come and show off her beauty to all the people. And she says, No. And all the women in here say, I hear it. We all hear you saying it in your heart. And us men should be saying the same thing too, you know. She says, no, I'm not going to come over there to your drunken party in your palace and show myself off to all those drunken men. Are you crazy? It's the same thing I would uh, advise my wife. If somebody asked her to show off her beauty somewhere, it wouldn't be me. She'd smack me. But if somebody asked her, I'd say, well, don't do that. And I would tell you the same thing, and all of you men better, better not try that. She says no, but what follows is, is a, a testosterone-filled panicking reaction that we better do something to her, or all the women of the province are going to rebel against their husbands. They're not going to honor their husbands. They're going to refuse whatever their husbands desire of them. So we've got to do something. Let's, let's depose her first. We've, we've, got to, we've got to fire her. Let's depose her. And then chapter 2 brings on a series of events that would make for beautiful primetime reality television. And it is reality, actually. Uh, unlike reality TV, it's usually not real. But the first would be a Miss Persia contest. The king is advised by a wise man. Some believe it to be Haman under another name in the first chapter. The king is advised by a wise man, and all the princes agree to it, that the king appoint officers in every province to gather all of the beautiful virgins and bring them to the capital that they might make preparations to be presented before the king and he can pick one that satisfies him. Well, that sounds great to a king, right? It's a great idea. Let's do it. And so they go out and uh, set off on this uh, course to, to gather all these women into the capital. Now, Hadassah takes her first step to be exalted to queen here when she, for her beauty, is chosen among the women of Shushan. It's this Jewish, you know, obscure captive. Um, I'm sure she kept herself well and, and, and all these things, but, I mean, she's nobody. 
And she's gorgeous. She's noticed. She's taken up with them, and Mordecai instructs her, go for it, but don't tell them that you're a Jewess or who I am or who your family is. Just don't disclose that. We're introduced to this Mordecai in the second chapter as a cousin who took her under his wing as his own daughter after the death of her father and mother, which in the way it's stated indicate that they may have been killed at the same time. It may have been during the conquest of Judah, where many were massacred by the king of Babylon. And so her cousin uh, endeared himself to her, took her under his wing, and it says he cared for her as his own daughter. They were pretty tight. She listened to everything he said. She was just she, she was very obedient to him, listened to everything he said. Now, when we get to the fourth chapter, you'll see her give him a command as the queen, and he listened to everything she said, which is a neat thing. But she is an orphan taken in uh, by her cousin. She took a second step towards stardom in chapter 2 when she became a favorite of the custodian of the women named Haggai. Now, that's not Haggai, the prophet. It's H-E-G-A-I, Haggai. Um, He is the custodian of the women in charge of this whole preparatory thing. And there is a house for the women, if you can imagine, probably thousands of women coming in. It doesn't say one from every province. It says all of the beautiful young virgins of the provinces. So there's probably thousands. And he's in charge of this thing. And she stood out to him. Uh, He really liked her so much so that he moved her during this one year of preparations to the best place in that house for the women. Now, I'm sure this was a big palace. There's the king's palace, and then there's this house of women. Now, there's, there's hundreds or thousands of women in there, so he gives her the best room and her maidservants. So there were maidservants from the capital that attended to each of these women. That's a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal. And she stands out to him. That's interesting. We learned some things about her without it even being said. Well, what happens next is uh, the next reality show would be like The Bachelor, you know, where all of these women are presented to the king one at a time. Uh, he has an evening with them and a morning with them. I don't think he has the night with them, uh, but they come to the palace in the late afternoon, evening, and leave in the morning. So they stay a night in the palace. I'm sure um, he wanted to see them in all of their beauty and glory in an evening gown and sit down to a meal with them and talk with them and test their congeniality. And he probably wanted to see what they looked like in the morning without makeup. Doesn't that just sound typical? So they left uh, after being in the king's presence, evening and morning, they left. So uh, Esther whatever the reasons for that, caught his attention. And she was something, something special. She caught his attention. Of all those women, she was chosen to be the queen of Persia. And the king threw a big feast called the Feast of Esther in her honor. Yet she hadn't revealed who her family was or her lineage. Isn't that funny? He was so intrigued with her, he must have asked her questions concerning perhaps her knowledge of of history, current events, 
Maybe, um, maybe there was small talk. Um, maybe he asked her what she thought of the kingdom. Maybe he asked her, uh, you know, where she lived, etc., etc. He never asked her, who's your family? So I guess it's a first date kind of thing. Um, didn't pry too much into it, but she doesn't disclose it. And that's important. That plays in really important. The chapter ends when Mordecai overhears as he's sitting outside the palace at the king's gate, the entryway to his palace. He, he, he always stationed himself there, especially when Esther was taken in as, as a queen. And he overheard two of these seven nobles who were allowed to come and go in the presence of the king. He overheard two of them plotting an assassination attempt against the king. So he sent word by another to Esther, told her of it, and she reported it to the king using Mordecai's name. A man named Mordecai outside the gate has reported that there is an assassination attempt on your life being plotted right now by these two men. Well, those two men were tried, they were hung, and that's another important factor to hold on to for a minute. And that's how the chapter closes with it being written in the annals of the kings, a record of his legacy, if you will. They're writing these things down, historians are, things that are taking place of matters of importance in the palace, of political and military and civil importance. Well, chapter 3 introduces the tension of the book. When it focuses on the rise of a prince named Haman, an Agagite, now, an Agagite would be one of the descent of Agag. Do you remember that name? It's quite possible. Most believe that this is a descendant of King Agag, who Saul, King Saul, Israel's first king, was supposed to go in and destroy utterly all that he had, including himself, and he didn't. He kept some of the best and said, well, I wanted to sacrifice of the flocks to God and wanted to keep some of the women <coughs> alive for some of the guys. And Samuel said, you've disobeyed the voice of the Lord. And uh, Samuel actually executed Agag. Well, he's an Agag, Agagite. That's hard to say. I can gag when I say that. He's an Agagite. All right, hold on to that. That's for a reason too. Because when uh, he rises to power, which is about four years after Esther becomes queen, the king commanded that men bow before him wherever he went. And they did, except for this one guy named Mordecai, who refused to bow down to him whenever he walked by. And this guy had everything. He had a wife and sons and a, and a house, and fa a, a great house near the king, he was the king's right-hand man. He was in great favor with him and with Esther, for that matter. And all of that was nothing to him so long as he'd walk by this Jew who would not bow down to him. And it just ate him up. It just ate him up from the inside out. But when Haman was informed of who this man was and learned the history of his people, it wasn't enough that he would suggests before the king that he execute Mordecai, he decided, I want to wipe out this entire race of people that are in our provinces. 
a holocaust, if you will. I want to annihilate this man's family. And that's one of the bits of evidence that leads you to believe he learned of Saul and Samuel's dealings with Agag of Amalek. He was an Amalekite, by the way. It was of the, the people of Amalek. And so he, he plots, begins to plot the dis- total destruction of the Jews. And he convinced Ahasuerus to m- permit him to rid the provinces of the Jews in a single-day massacre. Now, he cast lots for when the day and the month would occur, and it's the first month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the thirteenth day. So they've got eleven months, which is good and bad. Like, who wants to know that you're going to be killed for eleven months? Like, you know that on that day you're going to die, you've got eleven months to live. On the other hand, you've got eleven months. God's got eleven months. He's going to work some things here. And letters went out to all the provinces, to the people, whoever chooses, all the enemies of the Jews, they're permitted to initiate a a one-day massacre of the Jews. If they can kill them all, that's the idea. And then Haman sat down with the king at the end of chapter 3 and had a few drinks. (laughs) Chapter 4 ushers in perhaps the greatest of lessons within the book. When the news reached the streets, and it came to Mordecai pretty quickly, maybe intentionally, there was a great mourning among the Jews, including Mordecai, who wept in sackcloth and ashes in the city square. Then Esther learned of the plot and was deeply distressed, and through a servant named Haddock, she held a conversation with Mordecai outside the gate, who actually informed her of the what and why. He actually informed her. She was out of the loop on this thing for some reason or another. And he urged her to go to the king and plea for the people. And in this plea to her, we learn that he had a great understanding of God's workings in the lives of men from the beginning and somewhere in the future He's going to bring about a Savior. It's reflected in his statements. And Esther, not at first, comes to realize that, yes, in fact, this could possibly be why I'm here. Listen to Esther chapter 4, verses 10 through 7, excuse me, 17. <clears throat> then Esther spoke to Haddock and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present at Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I'll go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, 
I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did all that Esther commanded him. The statement, who knows if you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this, may sound like an ignorance statement. Who knows? But it's actually a carefully constructed statement reflecting a well-thought-out understanding of past, present, and future circumstances and how God works with His people designed to trigger Esther's recollection of the same. Who knows whether you have come to this status of queen in the kingdom? Who knows whether this is God's doing that you're here for a reason? After all, it is pretty strange, Hadassah, that you're the queen of Persia. And what's the chances? And so he pricks her understanding of history here to where she says, he's right. Number one, he's right that I, I won't escape any more than anybody else. If there's a decree of the king, it's irrevocable, it's irreversible. I, a Jewess, when found out, will die. Whether he is sorry about it or not, it's going to follow the law. I'll die. But secondly, who does know whether I'm queen for such a time as this? I don't know. But I'm going to act in faith. I'm going to take the counsel of my cousin. And I'm going to act in faith. And in chapter 5, she puts on all her royal robes and she waltzes in to the inner court of the king's palace. He's sitting in the throne room. And he looks out and there she is, uninvited, uncalled, unannounced. Be like somebody coming into your foyer at your house. And it doesn't matter if it's your mother or your father or a best friend or somebody you dearly love. If somebody's all of a sudden standing in your house and they didn't knock and ring your doorbell, how do you feel about it? Like our privacy, don't we? We like to know when somebody wants in, especially if you're the king. You don't just waltz into the White House. She had to get by some people at the gates. They probably said, what are you doing? She said, let me go. She had command over them. She didn't over the king, but he held out his golden scepter. Held it out. What do you want? She came forward, she touched it, and she asked him not to save her people, but to come to a feast. Come to a, a banquet that I want to hold and invite Haman to come with you. And so, he's excited about this. And uh, she does so. And what we find is Haman and the king coming to a banquet and asking the same question. Esther, what, what do you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom, my queen. What, what do you want? Well, I want you to come back again tomorrow night for another banquet. <laughs> okay. Well, things get really interesting that evening. Haman, filled and happy being in the king and the queen's favor, walks out of the palace, and he's on his way home. It says he was overjoyed. He's walking home, and he goes past Mordecai, who spites him. And it just eats him alive. All that is put behind him, and he goes home, and he calls his family together, and he says, what do I do about this guy? And his wife said, why don't you just build a gallows 75 feet high and hang him on it? Well, honey, that's a, that's a terrific idea. I'll go to the king right away first thing in the morning with that idea. Meanwhile, back at the palace, the king has a case of divine insomnia. He can't sleep. Huh. 
Well, what do you do when you're sleepy and you can't sleep? You call for somebody to read you history. <laughs> I, actually, I actually love history. I'm, I'm poking fun because I used to go to sleep in all my history classes. I love it now. But he calls for them to read the records of his rule as king, and they're reading through, and he's listening, and they come to the part where it's written that a man named Mordecai unveils a plot against him, an assassination attempt. He said, hold on, hold on. What's been done for that guy? He said, nothing. Well, something needs to be done for him. So Haman comes into the palace. I believe the next day it doesn't say, but it seems to be the case. Early the next morning, the king says, who's in the court? They said, Haman. He walks up to Haman. Haman's coming to him with a suggestion to hang Mordecai 75 feet high so everybody can see it and he can be happy. And the king's coming to him to ask him advice on how he ought to honor Mordecai. It's interesting. Haman, what shall the king do for the man whom he honors? Haman says, well, I guess that would be me. Um, I would do this. And he goes through a program to, to exalt this man before all the people. And he said, I would even have one of your nobles, one of your, one of your best men to lead him through the city streets and proclaim before him, thus will the king do for all whom the king honors. That's a tremendous idea, Haman. I want you to go get Mordecai, put him on one of my royal horses with all the head dressings and everything, and I want you, being a high-ranking official as you are, to be the one who leads Mordecai through the city streets, proclaiming, thus will the king do for all whom the king honors. What? So he does so. And that night he runs home with his hands over his head, it says. He runs back to his house. And an interesting statement of understanding is made by his wife in this case, who's not quite as supportive. In chapter 6, verse 13, she said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you'll surely fall before him. Well, thanks, hon. Your first plan was terrible. It didn't work out. Now you're telling me that there's no way I'm going to overcome this man. What makes you think that? Do you think she's been doing a little studying on Jewish history? Do you think she's starting to see writing on the wall? I think so. Why would she say that otherwise? You're beginning to fall before this man. If he's a Jew, then God's doing this. The Jewish God that we have heard and read about is at work and there's nothing we're going to do about this. No. Huh. So in chapter 7, the king and Haman go to dine with Queen Esther. The king asks Esther, what, what can I do for you? Up to half the kingdom. And imagine he's getting a little tired of asking. Now it's the third time. And she says, I need you to issue a decree to save me and my people from absolute and utter destruction that's being plotted against us. Well, who would do such a thing? That guy, right there. The king doesn't know what to do. He, he, he rushes out of the palace. He goes out into his garden. And he stays there for long enough for Haman to lunge across the couch where Esther's sitting and beg her, please don't do this to me. The king comes back in and there he is on the couch falling all over Esther. Now he's, now he's assaulting the queen. 
As if this wasn't enough, now he's, he's trying to assault sexually the queen. Take him and hang him on the gallows, was the advice of one of his nobles. Hang him on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. That resonated with the king. And he was indeed hung on those same gallows. Well, chapter 7 reveals this. It ends with the hanging. And chapter 8 begins with Esther's personal introduction of Mordecai to the king. O king, this is my cousin, Mordecai the Jew, who saved your life, and I want him to have a place of honor in the kingdom. And he so impressed the king, not that he gave him a nice little place to live or fed him from the king's table, but he actually rose to great power. And by the end of the book, and I won't go through the rest of the chapters, but by the end of the book, all of the people of the provinces have such a deep regard for him that on this day when the Jews were to be massacred, which is irrevocable, so the king didn't send out letters that said, hey, never mind that. What he did was permit the Jews to defend themselves. He can't take it back, so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to write a decree. Actually, Esther and Mordecai, you guys write it and craft it how you want. Send it out so that the Jews can band together and defend themselves and do whatever they wish to their enemies. So the king's written permission for the enemies of the Jews to make war against the Jews, and the king has to write permission for the Jews to make war against their enemies. And on that 13th day of the 12th month, when the enemies of the Jews, it says, hoped to overpower them, the opposite happened. That's what the Scripture says. The opposite happened. That's pretty much the story, except for the feast, the memorial feast of Purim. Pure being the Persian word for lot. In memory of what Haman's plot was, they called it the Feast of Purim, it was a feast of gathering. It was a feast of celebration and joy. There was gifting, and they gave to the poor on this day every year. Now, here's what we can take away from this book. I told you at the beginning, this had to do with you. If Christ promised that the Messiah would come through Abraham's descendants, obviously, if Abraham's descendants are annihilated, Christ will not be able to come through his seed. Number one, God preserved them alive so that he could keep his promise to all of us that Christ would come and save us from our sins. And he would do it just how he said. Number two, he showed you how far he would go to do that. God can work powerfully, whether it's by miracle, poof, right in front of your eyes, or just in the, in the world of men, quote unquote, behind the scenes without your knowing all that he's doing. And he promises He's working day and night. Jesus said that. My Father is working and I work until the night comes. That day when I come back. He'll do whatever it takes to save you. God has a plan for your life. And that plan needs to be initiated now. When, when Esther realized it, the time was now that He wants me to act. And I... And I say to you that God puts His people in the right place at the right time to act. I said this a thousand times to young people. God doesn't like to waste your time. So there's something He wants you to be doing now. 
Usually it involves ministry right where you are, loving and serving and helping people and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it might be in a very special way. It might be in a way that you think, well, certainly not me. Well, I couldn't do that. He wouldn't use me like that. And I say to you, watch and have faith. God can use your obscurity, your um, unfamiliarity, your lack of fame and fortune. He can use all of that to do whatever He wants through you. And don't underestimate yourself or God. But God has a plan for your salvation, finally. And in that Hebrew passage that Josh read for us in our text, our reading, he said that there was no one greater that he could swear by to make sure that we understood that he was going to do this, so he swore by himself. He made a promise and he swore by an oath that he would bring about a Savior for all men. And he did so. And he said in the Hebrew letter in chapter 6 that that one, Christ, was the forerunner before us to go into the heavens. Do you know what it means, a forerunner? It means we're supposed to run after Him into the heavens. He went before us into the heavens to prepare a way for us to God. He raised from the dead to do so, and He said, I'll raise you from the dead. Now, when you read of all these acts of God in history, and you understand that this is the same God that made the world that we live in today, He has proclaimed that I have not changed. Are you willing to believe Him that Christ is the answer to your life, your desires, your needs, to your need for forgiveness of sin, to your need for guidance through the world of men, your need for Fellowship with God to know who your Creator is, where you came from, where you're going, what you're doing here, and your purpose? Do you believe that? God said, I did all this to present you Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and in the heavens, the forerunner. Follow Him. Follow Him. And that's my call to you today. Let's stand and sing this song, and if you need to follow Jesus, please come.